As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, remember your word to your servants in which you have made us hope. This is our comfort and our affliction that your promise gives us life. Your words have been our songs in the house of our sojourning. And so by your spirit in your word now, please show us Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, um, I think you'll find that on many of them around page 563. Um, Song of Solomon comes after Ecclesiastes and before Isaiah. And if you're visiting with us this evening, we're glad to have you here. We've been considering in the evening the Heidelberg Catechism, largely speaking, um, and we've been going, as we've been going through the Ten Commandments, when we came to the Seventh Commandment, we have been going through the Song of Solomon kind of as an expanded consideration of what God teaches us in the seventh commandment, that we might not just think of uh, the things that God forbids, but the things that God commands. And so we've come in our study of the Song of Solomon to chapter 8, verses 5 through 7. And so I'm going to read that portion of the song, and then we'll consider it together. So Song of Solomon, chapter 8, beginning at verse 5. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you, there your mother was in labor with you, there she who bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave, its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Well, as we've been considering our way through this song, we're getting to the end um, of our study, and we've come to really the last poem, the last section of the song this evening. Um, And this song has been a reflection on the particular love experienced by this husband and wife, holding out for us a kind of ideal picture of marital love, Uh, the fears and the delights, the ups and the downs, the separation and the intimate union have all been part of uh, their story as we've considered this Song of Songs that Solomon's, that's why it's sometimes called two things, right? It's the Song of Songs, like Jesus is the King of Kings, that is Solomon's. It's a wonderful reflection. And this is a final sort of reflection on the nature of love itself in this final poem. It helps us to complete the picture of how to love uh, that we've been thinking about this text, giving wisdom for how to love this wonderful picture that this song has painted for us. As we've gone through, we've talked about how the wisdom of this song for how to love gives us both beams and bombs. You remember we've talked about this? It gives us, wisdom gives us the bombs for blowing up false worldviews about these things, and then also provides the beams on which we can build. Um, And so wisdom is very important in all aspects of the Christian life, but in particular in love. And one bomb that we see very clearly spelled out to us in this passage is that love and marriage and even the physical intimacy that's to be enjoyed exclusively in marriage is not to mess around with as if it's some kind of game. Uh, This is really stressing for us the power of these things. Um, And, of course, that runs contrary to how the world thinks about these things. 
uh, the Bible considers this love to be exclusive to one's spouse, just as marriage is between one particular man and one particular woman. So their love and their physical intimacy is to be exclusive. And this runs contrary to the ideas that our world has, um, that you really only have to be true to yourself in love and marriage and relationships, it's perfectly okay to be in and out of love with a lot of different people, in and out of relationships with them, even marriages and physical intimacy as those relationships wax and wane, that they're sort of interchangeable, they can be entered into and exited from. Now we know that sin ruins relationships and there are even times when it's biblically acceptable and proper to end marriages. But again, the wisdom here is for that ideal picture that ideally these things are to be taken seriously and that the picture that's been painted to us throughout this song is not of people who are easily in and out of love, who enter in and out of the relationships with a bunch of different people, um, but this true love is that they, what they have for one another. And there's an exclusivity inherent in it as it's presented to us. Um, that's how love ought to be directed according to God's word to think of love and marriage in terms of individuals giving themselves to one another uh, for mutual possession and for self-giving to the other person. And there too, that runs so contrary to our world today, right? That you really only possess yourself and that's you're always looking out for number one. Uh, that sort of idea that I belong to myself and if I can be happier elsewhere, I have the right to take myself and my love somewhere else. And that's so contrary to the beauty that we've seen portrayed here in the song, that constant refrain, I am my beloved's and my beloved, my beloved is mine. And we've said as we go along, as we see this pattern for natural love, what is it unfolding for us? It's unfolding for us the reality of how Christ loves his church. And the more we understand this love that's presented to us between husband and wife, the more deeply we'll understand how Christ loves his bride the church. And so as we think about this passage, we really want to see how it reflects on the exclusivity and the mutual possession entailed by love and marriage by looking at variations on love and the value of love and the victory of love that we see in this sort of final poem. That's how we want to think about this together. Variations on love, the value of love, and the victory of love. Um, people have pointed out this is kind of a variation on love here at the end of the psalm. Oftentimes a symphony has a kind of fi- finale. And in that finale you often hear the themes and the elements of the music you've already heard. It's kind of being wrapped up and tied together at the end. There are, there are variations and reminders of things that you've heard before. And as one commentator said, that's really what we have at the end of this song. We can think of this as kind of a finale, a variation on some of the themes that we've heard before, reminders of things that have come before. Um, And in verse 5, we really begin with a question that we've seen before, a question that's already been asked about the woman. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Who is that coming up from the wilderness? That's, that's a variation on a theme. That's an that's a rem- echo and a reminder of something that we've heard before. This is the exact question that was asked back in chapter 3, verse 6, on the wedding day, uh, when she came up as a bride, 
Remember, she was on that, that glorious litter of Solomon. She was surrounded by all of those mighty men. There was this great scene of the bride coming up from the wilderness prepared for her husband. It's a reminder of that wedding day. It's a variation on that theme. But notice how much simpler the situation is here. There's no pomp and ceremony. There's no great litter. There's no great surrounding men. How does the woman come up this time? It's very simple, isn't it? Who is this who comes up from the wilderness leaning on her beloved? It's a reminder of the joys of the wedding day, but there's not all the formality here anymore. Not all of the the glitz and the glitter, the gold and the purple that was there before. Now it's just simply the husband and his wife. And it's a beautiful picture of this, this love and this dependence shown there. She does not come up alone as she did when she came up to be married. She just doesn't come up out of the wilderness in all of this ceremony to her husband. Now how does she come up from the wilderness with her husband? The wife leaning on her husband. And not surrounded by this royal guard, but she's drawing security and stability from him. He's the one that she is leaning on. And they come up from the wilderness now together. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it, of a, of a married couple in peace and love, depending on one another. Uh, that's a reminder that we have by way of this question. Um, it's another reminder we have in uh, verse, the second part of verse 5 when we hear, under, under the apple tree, I awakened you. That word awakened is another variation. It's another theme that should come floating through to us from the rest of this song. Um, That love is awakened, or sometimes the word's been translated, love is stirred up or aroused. It's the same word that's been coming up throughout the song, and it comes wafting back in here uh, to say that under the apple tree, I awakened you. Um, When she was adjuring the daughters of Jerusalem not to awaken love before it pleases, it was that that same sense of love being awakened. And this is the clearest picture yet, maybe, of the love between the husband and wife in the full flower of, per- of perfection. Uh, there's unmistakable connotations, again, of physical intimacy here under the apple tree. Uh, chapter 2, verse 5 mentioned apples with those clear overtones of intimacy. And those individual apples now here become the whole tree, symbolizing the lasting nature of the loving relationship. Right? Fruit that's picked off of a tree only lasts so long. You know that if you've ever opened the fridge and found an apple you forgot about in the back of the drawer. Right? Picked fruit only lasts so long, but an apple tree is living. It's still bearing fruit. Uh, that's how the metaphor has been changed. Again, this variation, this reminder, but it's been changed. And it's a way of wonderfully reminding us that this is also the way through, through which God has planned to extend the family tree. Um, It doesn't literally mean that they're under the same apple tree where the husband was born, right? Under the apple tree I awakened you, there your mother was in labor with you, there she who bore you was in labor. Uh, Not speaking literally here, but figuratively. There's a way of thinking about the continuing family line, right? The intimacy that produced the husband and wife, they're now intimate with each other, hoping to produce a fruitful line together. This is the way the Lord has extended the covenant family. 
It's a reminder to us that physical intimacy isn't only about mutual satisfaction and enjoyment. It is certainly about that, but God has also connected that to the procreation and the extension of the covenant line. And that's something that's being celebrated here. Uh, This is a continuation of the line of the covenant that God has extended through marriage and family. Um, And that's an important thing to keep in mind uh, when we think about these things. We make a mistake if we think of procreation only as it relates to childbearing. There's been a tendency at times in the church to talk that way, as if it's sort of a necessary evil that God has created so that he might raise up more Christians. Um, It's not that. That's not how God has made it. It is to be enjoyed. But the world makes another mistake about it when they think that physical intimacy is only about personal enjoyment, divorced from love and marriage and family. Uh, We have to hold those things together uh, to see the value that God has expressed and means for it to have in the family relationship. Those are some of the variations on this theme of love that lead to the song celebrating the true value of love. Uh, This is still the wife speaking. We see the value the wife sets on the desires that she expresses and she explains in verses 6 and 7. It's a wonderful expression. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. Uh, That's what she wants. That's her desire for her husband to set her as a seal on his heart and on his arm. Uh, What does he mean by a seal here? We'll think of it like a stamp made by a signet ring in wax or a rancher's brand on his cattle. I'm not saying she wants to brand her husband exactly, but that's sort of the the metaphor, right? It's what is it a picture of in that culture of, of identification, of possession. It shows something as belonging to you. It's a way of identifying something uniquely. And what is she asking her husband to do? Set me as a seal on you. Set me as a seal on you, showing that you belong to me, identifying you as my own, because my beloved is mine. And not just her seal, right, but her seal on on his arm and on his heart. Why those two places? Well, in wisdom literature, as we've talked about before, the heart is kind of the center, the control center of the man, the control center of the person. Everything in life, your, your emotions, your thoughts, everything flows out from the heart in that thinking. So she wants who he is as hers. And then what does his arm represent? It represents all of his strength for action, all of his power. And so it's her way of describing the whole of him. Everything that you are and everything that you do, I want that to be mine. Right? I want that, I want my I want me to be set as a seal on you. To show that everything that you are and everything that you do really belongs to me. Um, It's a beautiful way of expressing, as one person put it, that the woman wants to be constantly at his side and in his thoughts and an integral a part of his identity. It's a desire to be inseparably united, to be inseparably united together. And we shouldn't really be surprised that she is unapologetically and unashamedly possessive of him. Um, This is maybe a little countercultural 
Because back then, a lot of people would have said that the wife belongs to the husband. Uh, So much so that in really extreme cases, almost as if she's the property of the husband. And that's certainly not how the Bible views things, and that's certainly not how the song views things. She understands that he belongs to her and that she belongs to him, not because they are possessions to be taken, but because they've been willingly given. Right? That's the beauty of the song, that they belong to each other because they've willfully, willingly, and joyfully given one another to each other. Right? They're not together because of a shotgun wedding or because they've been forced into it. Um, they love each other. They wanted to give each other to one another. And that's what makes the bond that they have so strong. This mutual giving, this willful giving to one another and possessing one another makes these things so strong. Right? She expresses this desire. And then there are important things said here about the value of love and this bond that can't be broken. And there's this wonderful comparison um, in verses 6 and 7 to some of the most powerful forces that we know and identifying love with those things. Um, Maybe if you just read the title of the sermon in the bulletin and thought, what on earth are we going to talk about? Love is strong as death. Who came up with that idea? Well, the Holy Spirit did. Um, because the Solomon, as he's writing this song, is thinking about the natural world and the things that are really strong in the world. What are some of the strongest things that we know? Death is one. The grave is one. Fire is one. And those are all being used to help describe the bond that is forged in love. Love is strong as death. Now, again, we've talked about, you know, is this proper material for a Hallmark card in the song? You know, do you want to say, love, your love is as strong as death to me? Um, you might need some explaining, right, if you do that. But what is, what is the, really the picture being given here? What is death? One person said, death cannot be easily challenged or prevented. It is a tenacious foe. And when it calls, no human being has the power to resist it. Once people enter its grip, there is no going back. Death never releases those whom it holds captive. So too love is tenacious and single-minded. It's a picture of that tenacious strength, which in death is a sobering thing to behold. But when it comes to love, is a marvelous thing to think about. That love is strong as death. Love won't let go like death won't let go. Jealousy is as stubborn as the grave, the song goes on. Love marches hand in hand with jealousy. Now here is one of those biblical words that is so important in the Bible and so hard for us because we don't associate jealousy with good things. Right? Jealousy in human terms is almost always a bad thing. If someone says to you, you know, I have a jealous boyfriend, you don't say to that person, oh, congratulations, that's exactly what you're looking for. Right? We recognize that's a bad quality in most cases. Uh, jealousy really is only a good thing in certain cases because jealousy in the proper biblical sense 
means the assertion of a rightful claim of possession. You're, you're asserting a rightful claim, a claim that you, that you have that's good over the thing that rightfully belongs to you. But for us so often, jealousy is a negative trait because people are claiming sole possession of things that don't belong to them. Right? So you can meet someone who has a jealous boyfriend who doesn't want her, want her talking to her friends, right? doesn't want her going out with people. That's assertion of possession where you have no right to say those things. Um, Jealousy is almost always a bad thing, except in the proper biblical sense, in in the two ways that God really points that out to us. Where is jealousy a positive trait? Well, I like how one commentator put it. The Bible only approves of jealousy in two relationships, the worship of God alone and the marriage covenant. Humans can only have one God. If they worship another, it triggers God's jealousy. God's jealousy is an energy that tries to rescue the relationship. Similarly, a man and woman can have only one spouse. If there is a threat to that relationship, then jealousy is a proper emotion. All this is because so much hangs on the integrity of the relationship. It is so basic, so deep that it stirs up strong emotions and passions. Love is strong as death, and it marches hand in hand with jealousy, which is stubborn as the grave. They're things that don't give up. They're things that can't be resisted. And love is like flashes of fire, we're told. Love's power ranks it among the strongest of greatest and strongest forces in existence. Uh, We know about fire around here all too well and the difficulty it is to resist it. And so we get all this rain and everything begins to grow. And if you're from here and the back of your mind is all of this is going to dry up and all of this is going to burn. And when it starts to burn, who can stop it? Love is like flashes of fire. It's a kind of uncontrollable force, difficult to master. But notice here that it's not just comparing love to natural fire. It's comparing it to the flame of the Lord. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. That's a really interesting thing to say. In part because it's the first time in the whole song the Lord has been explicitly mentioned. And it's not the flame of God, it's the flame of the Lord. Yahweh, his covenant name. It's the flame with which the Lord loves his people as a covenant God. Who loves them and will not let them go. The fire of the Lord... That flame is beyond all flames. That's the jealousy that burns in God for his people that will not let them go and will stop at nothing to restore the relationship if it's broken. Uh, All of those inherent powers are wonderful ways of describing the power of love as God has created it. And because it's so powerful, it has this power to endure against all forces that would oppose it. 
right? Verse 7, many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. Um, Waters and floods are also things that we cannot control. With all of our technology, with all of our engineering, we still are subject to floods. Floods are things that we cannot control. It's another way of talking about something that really is beyond our reach and only God can take control of it. But love can't be quenched by many waters. Fire and flood represent some of the most uncontrollable forces in the universe, and both are talked about here in connection with love. Those many waters that can rage over the earth, what is the song celebrating? Even that cannot quench love. You may not be able to restrain it, but it can't be quenched even by that irresistible force. That's the power of love. And there's also something priceless to it because it can't be purchased at any price. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. One commentator said, love is free, but it's not cheap. You can't, you can't buy it. It's freely given, but it can't be purchased at any price, not even the wealth of a man's household. We could go back to that person we talked about this morning, the richest person on earth worth $242 billion. He cannot buy someone's love. And the song recognizes if you tried, right, if you had the arrogance to think you could really buy someone's love, everyone would despise you as someone who can't do that. It doesn't have a price. True love cannot be purchased at any price. Um, And the fact that someone would be despised who thought they could buy it shows just how priceless it is. You see how this is a wonderful consideration and, and thought about the value of love. And it shows us what a glorious but serious business love is. And that should be a serious and sobering reminder of just how powerful this force is. What what is the practical wisdom that comes from understanding the, the strength of love? I like how one commentator put it. No one should lightly or thoughtlessly enter into a love or sexual relationship. To do so is to invite emotional catastrophe. Love has great power over one's own soul as well as over the soul of the other. Those who think that they can lightly enter love but then quench its fires till, till, will create a turmoil within their own hearts and invite trouble from their lovers. It is hardly out of character for the woman's part to give the audience such warnings about the power of love. She has already three times called on the Jerusalem women not to arouse love before it is ready. This is not to say, however, that love is a bad thing. It is an exquisite, soul-consuming experience that humans yearn for. To have this kind of passion for another person is a gift. It cannot be bought or sold. Love is here valued above wealth and all possessions. Um, That's why people often warn people against trying to love the kind of person you ought not to love. Right? Especially young people get told this. They start dating someone, maybe they're not a believer, 
and it's, you know, just dating who, who you know, it's not a really that big a deal. Well, what is, what is this teaching us? These are forces not to be played with, right? These aren't things to mess around with. There's power in love. There's a kind of unquenchable power in love. And how often have you met someone who fell in love with someone who was not a believer or there was some other quality of theirs that you said, you know, this is going to be very bad for you to love this person and to go down that road. And their response is always the same, but I love them and I can't let them go. That's why this book is filled with warnings. These things are powerful, they're important, they're wonderful, but they're certainly not to be trifled with. And they're not to be extended in directions that God has not commanded. Because if you seek love with someone that you're going to be unequally yoked with, or is not the kind of person that God has called us to love, you could be caught in the grip of this. And then think about how unbreakable this is. Now, these are serious things. But then after meditating on the victory of love, we can, on the value of love, we can think about the victory of love. Because in these natural loves, what does God call us to do? To use these things to help us to understand the love that Christ has for his bride. And when we think about these variations on love and the value of love that's set forth to us here, we can see why the victory of God's love for his people is what it is. Because the love he has for his people is stronger than death. That comes to us in a whole new light with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't it? That love is stronger than death when it comes to our Lord who gave himself for us. His love could not be destroyed by death. And there it's not poetic or figurative, it's literal. His love is stronger than death. It enabled him even to overcome the grave on our behalf. In his poem on the incarnation and passion of Christ, Henry Vaughan wrote this, Ah, my dear Lord, what couldst thou spy in this impure, rebellious clay that made thee thus resolve to die for those that kill thee every day? Oh, what strange wonders could thee move to slight thy precious blood and breath? Sure, it was love, my Lord, for love is only stronger far than death. It was love that moved our Lord to be willing to endure death and the grave for us. And his love was stronger than death. And his jealousy for his people was stronger than the grave. His love for us walked hand in hand with his jealousy as the covenant Lord for his people. He had an irrevocable commitment to his bride. And his jealousy for us was that energy that caused him to rescue the relationship. And it's God's jealousy for his people. His love is not just evident when Christ fulfills redemption in time and history, but it was also evident from the very beginning when mankind fell, when the Lord God announced his jealous commitment to his people and promised to rescue the relationship all the way back in the garden when he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The Lord is the greatest evidence of God's love and jealousy for his people. A love that was stronger even than eternal death 
that he suffered on our behalf. His jealousy for us was more stubborn than the grave. And though all hell would endeavor to keep him enclosed there, nothing could quench his love for his people. He had to rise triumphant for us because there was nothing in the world that could quench the love that God has for his people. And the fire with which Christ loves us, the very flame of the Lord, burns so fiercely for us that nothing could separate us from him and nothing can now separate us from him. The Lord that loved us so fiercely that he gave himself for us still loves us just as fiercely. His love is still stronger than our deaths. His jealousy is still stronger than our graves. And we'll know that when we go into them. If the Lord doesn't return again in glory before it happens and we are called to go into the grave, we can go into the grave with the assurance assurance, His love is stronger than death. His jealousy is stubborn as the grave. He will not let us go. It's been his commitment since the garden all the way to Calvary, all the way to the very end of the age. He loves us and will not let us go. And the price he was willing to pay to redeem us was his own body and soul. It shows us the value he sets on us, that that was the price he was willing to pay for us. And God's word continues to try to comfort us with that assurance that the Lord loves his people and because he loves us, he will not let us go. So we can think of the great words and we'll, we'll end here with these great words of Isaiah from Isaiah 43, 1 through 5 where the Lord says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. He is with us always to the very end of the age. And his love for us is stronger far than death. What a wonderful Savior we have. Praise his name. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the love that you have created, the love that you have put into the world as part of the creation, the love between husband and wife. And we thank you that in a profound way, You've given to us a picture of how Christ loves his bride. We are thankful for his unquenchable love for us, his jealousy that caused him even to give up his own body and soul to death and to hell to save us because he loved us and would not let us go. Father, thank you for that love. May it comfort our hearts and minds as we go out into the world this week to live our lives, to know that we go as a people who are dearly loved by you. And if we should ever become doubtful of how much you love us, would we think on the sacrifice of your son and how he was willing to give himself up for us all? And if you've given him to us, how would you withhold any other thing 
You've already shown the extent of your love to us. And so may it comfort us as we live before your face until that great day comes and Christ returns and we see that love incarnate face to face. Hear us and sustain us until that great day, we pray, for we ask these things in his precious name. Amen.